Hello and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Meyer, and we are in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. And today we're going to continue our podcast on um, finding God in your spiritual desert or finding your way out of a spiritual desert, however you want to see that. Um, And this is part two. If you haven't listened to part one, go back and listen to part two so I don't have to say the same things twice. Um, Before I continue, one thing I was going to say is... um, been having a lot of good feedback on my podcast. Seems like every time I pick up the phone and be like, "Hey, how's it going?" They're like, "Hey, I was just listening, I was just listening to your podcast." And I'm like, "Cool." Um, a lot of people seem to listen to the one about um, Anglicanism and Mennonites and Anglicans. Um, so if you like my podcast, um, well, let me know for one thing. It's awesome. I mean, it's it's so encouraging. It lets me know that this is something to put my energy into. Um, my blog, I have stats where I can see right away, you know, if there's 20 people or, or 50 people that read a blog post in a day, but the podcast, for some reason, there's no stats. So I have no feedback. Um, and a lot of times I just feel like I'm, I'm, I'm talking into the air or something. So, um, if you let me know, that's awesome, but even better, go onto the iTunes store and give it a like or else write a little review. Um, I currently have no reviews except for the one that I wrote, <laughs> which is kind of cheesy. Um, but uh, in all seriousness, this would get it out there more. Other people would see it. Other people would um, would potentially listen to it, and I could make a bigger impact in the world if you would just go and click like in the iTunes store. Um, it's a digital age with digital currency, and um, your time is the thing everybody's clamoring for myself as well. All right, so we're going to continue with um, how to get out of a spiritual desert, and I've got six today. Um, And I I kind of felt bad leaving you last week with those four, and I hope you all listen to my introduction that um, you can be in different deserts. There's different deserts, and we haven't even got to them all. And so, you know, I really hammered hard on the desert of sin, but you might be in a different desert. And so um, listen attentively to the Spirit about which desert you're in and uh, don't don't follow the wrong roadmap out because it's going to be the wrong map. It's going to take you to the wrong place. All right, so moving on. Sometimes we're, we're in um, a spiritual battle. Sometimes what's going on has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with spiritual forces in high places. Um, you know, Daniel ten twelve to 13 is a verse that always fascinated me and confused me. You might have noticed already that I like verses that confuse me uh, because I read them and I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. And then I think about it and think about it and, and journal and, and come back to it the next time I'm through the Bible. And, and then it makes sense. And then it's like, wow, cool. Um, which is why I don't get people that are like, the Bible doesn't make sense. I want to leave. I, I, you know, I'm sick of it. I can't be a Christian because the Bible doesn't make sense. I'm like, that's the good part. <laughs> that's, you just need to dig a little bit deeper uh, in those parts that don't make sense. And then you'll find even more blessings. That's where the, that's where the treasure is hidden under the rocky bits. So in Daniel 10, 12 to 13, let me read it because I don't have that one memorized very well. Um, uh, Daniel, 
pronounce this. So the context is that Daniel has been praying and praying for his people. He realizes it's been 70 years that they've been back in Babylon. God has promised to bring them back. And he's like, God, what's what's going on? Uh, and, and he start, started just really fasting and praying, begging God to forgive them and to uh, come through on his promise. And finally, an angel shows up after 21 days or something. And the angel says, um, are we here? O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Um, and as soon as he spoke, I received strength. And he said, uh, may the Lord speak for you, strengthen me. And he continued, do you, um, I'm in the wrong place. Sorry, I might be reading verse 12. Um, do not be afraid, Daniel. For the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and humbling yourself before God, your words were heard. And I've come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia has withstood me for 21 days. And then, behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I have been left, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the future, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. And so, uh, the angel say which angel it is. I'm not sure. An angel shows up after Daniel has been praying and fasting for 21 days. That's a long time when you're praying and fasting. Um, three weeks. And he says, you know what? You wouldn't believe it. The traffic was crazy today. Um, That's the past three weeks. It, I, God sent me right away. He loves you. He cares for you. He heard you. Um, you are a very special person for God. And he sent me right away. It's just, I, I got held up. Um, there was a spiritual war going on. In fact, I wasn't able, I wasn't going to make it. And then God sent another angel to help me. One of the chief angels fought against the prince of Persia so that I could get through and send you this message. And so sometimes there's a spiritual war going on and um, it's just hard because of the spiritual war. Um, a lot of things were different when we came back from Africa. We spent uh, eight months in... Um, and it was an extremely hard place just to be, I mean, for a lot of reasons, third world country, one of the poorest countries in the world, uh, very, very hot, arid place. Uh, my wife was having a lot of physical difficulties with the heat. Um, but one of the main things that struck me when I got back home, um, was the spiritual element that I felt like every minute I was there, I was in a spiritual battle. Um, I had nightmare upon nightmare upon, you know, nightmare. Part of that was the heat. Part of that was transition. Part of that was other things. But part of it was just spiritual warfare. That there was a spirit in that place that was saying, you don't belong. I don't want you here. I don't want you to succeed. And I'm going to fight you. And, uh, you know, that, you know, when I came home, it was gone. There wasn't that that constant fight. Um, this past uh, September or August, as we were gearing up for the next school year, um, against every every year when it starts, I get this this anxious this this pressure, this feeling inside me. And I, there's this specific night I had this this nightmare, um, just 
wrestling on the floor with this guy. And I was just fighting and fighting and fighting this guy. And he was stronger than me. And so I just started yelling out, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And then I was able to throw him off. Uh, not by my strength, but Jesus threw me. And I woke up and just all my muscles in my back, all the way down my spine were just tight. Like I had just been pushing with all my might. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes we're in spiritual battles. You know, and some of that stuff, he can really push me and say, that was just a nightmare. Were you just anxious about the year starting? Maybe, you know, I don't know. But sometimes we're in spiritual battles. Um, sometimes we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and spiritual powers in the high places. Um, and Jesus, you know, was baptized and God's voice came from heaven. This is my beloved son that I love so much. Listen to him. And right away, what does he do? He goes out to the desert. And in Mark, it says the spirit drove him out to the desert. And the verb is really interesting. I've heard some commentators really have a field day with this verb because it's not the sort of verb you would expect. Uh, the spirit drove him out to the desert. You get this image of somebody chasing a goat with a stick, like, go, go, go to the desert. And Jesus is out there for 40 days, like, all right, now what? Um, and we don't know exactly what what his deal was or what, you know, he was God, but he had emptied himself, as it says in Philippians 2. It doesn't seem like he really knew what was going on. And then Satan shows up and starts tempting him. Hey, eat some bread. Just test God and you can have this bread. Hey, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Just worship me. Hey, um, just just bow down and worship me. It'll all be good. You don't have to go to the cross. Um, and he was in a spiritual battle. And once he defeated the devil, once he defeated these temptations, then it was done. That was the point, was to defeat the devil in the spiritual attack. And so sometimes you're in a desert because you're fighting the enemy and he's got you in a prison. Maybe that prison is sin or maybe it's just spiritual attack. Sometimes Satan has something on you. Um, and whether you played with a Ouija board as a kid or you watched Star Wars and, and you tried to make things fly with your mind or you know whatever it is, maybe some, Satan might have something on you. And uh, with, with a mentor, with a counselor, maybe you can go back and, and just really ask God, is there something I've done to give ground to the enemy? Have I messed with something? Tried to have powers that I couldn't have. Maybe it's even yoga and trying to, you know, move the, the powers of, you know, that are floating around you to, to channel them into whatever. You know, some of that stuff can, can even give Satan ground, um, depending on where your heart is with that and, and your attitude. Um, maybe you're in a spiritual desert because Satan's got something on you and he's, he's, he's using it for all he can to try and control you and, and get into you. Um, sometimes spiritual forces can be generational. Um, and you need to break those, uh, break those generational ties and a mentor can help you or, or a spiritual counselor can help you with that. Um, and sometimes it's standing firm. It's just, you just need to stand firm. You just need to fight. Um, I want to tell you a story. Um, well, first of all, the verse with that is uh, James 4, 7. Submit therefore to God. 
resist the devil and he will flee from you. In the larger context here also, um, therefore he gives a greater grace. It's Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Wash your, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. So there's all these things kind of packed to this passage. Humble yourself. Um, repent of your sin. Submit to God and resist the devil. All that stuff is kind of the same battle. And in the midst of that, Satan flees from you. I want to tell you a little bit of a story, um, again, kind of going through some of the, the highlights of my life <laughs> or low lights of my life. Um, I was a student and uh, towards the end of, of high school, really, 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 really struggling. I had a, a class project I was trying to do, um, and I, I worked on it for like six to eight weeks and literally could not put one single word on on the paper like just couldn't write anything I'd write a few things I'd say that's terrible I'd delete it I'd write something else I'd hate it I'd delete it I'd, I'd feel so much pressure and anguish and, and and tension that I'd just get up and have to do something else and come back and just I couldn't do it I just couldn't and I was just putting so much pressure on myself you know if I can't get this done I'm going to fail high school then I'm just going to fail life and I'm going to everything's terrible and I'm such a terrible person and just I just was under so much pressure and tension. And it all came to a point where I was, it was due the next day and I had nothing. I had nothing. And I, I was supposed to present the next day. And I was like, what am I supposed to do? And I left my home and went walking the golf course in the drizzling rain. Um, and it was cold. Uh, it was, you know, would have been like uh, March probably or April. Uh, very cold at that time of year to be walking in the drizzling rain. I don't think he even had a jacket on. It was, you know, and, and just climbed in a tree and I was just sitting there kind of rocking and staring. And I just was thinking like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And um, in hindsight, as I look back at that, that 17-year-old kid sitting in a tree in the rain on a drizzly March day in... Uh, in, um, without a jacket I think that kid just about lost his mind like I almost I was in a bad state mentally um, it was not a good thing and uh, finally I said I just need to drop the course and move on and honestly that's what I would have counseled that kid to do <laughs> at that point I mean he had nothing and so I did the teacher was angry didn't see him again avoided that particular teacher and and went on with my life but then I had the same issue and I was trying to write a paper for an English class and again I could put nothing 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 on paper I was just so so um under so much pressure and tension and um I started praying God like help me like what am I supposed to do I I, I just can't do anything and I felt like what God was telling me was right right 
write down what you are hearing. And I went down to my room and I started writing out some of the things I was hearing. Because as I would sit down to write, it was like this, this dark cloud of voices would just surround my head or my spirit and just start speaking all these terrible things to me. Things like, you're a failure, you messed up, you're such a waste of time, you're such a waste of space, you're ugly, nobody loves you, you sinned, you sinned again, you're such a sinner, you're such a wicked person. And I started writing all these things out, and when I saw them on paper, I was like, well, this is stupid, like, this isn't true. I know I'm not a waste of space, I'm made in God's image. I know I'm not a failure, I am successful in Christ. I know I have sinned, but I've asked God for forgiveness for that, so I'm not living in sin anymore. Um, and so as I wrote those things out, I realized this is Satan attacking me. He's telling me these things to try and keep me prisoner and to try and destroy me. And so I felt like what God was saying next is resist. Résistance, as they say in French. Resist. Resist. Um, and as those attacks came, as those words came, again, as soon as I sat down, boom, they all come again. I said, no, that's not true. That's not true. Sometimes I would kind of put my hands down, lean back in my chair and quietly whisper, but in a hoarse way, kind of, that's not true. You know, because it's not true that I was a waste of space or whatever. And I knew the truth to them. Um, and God really gave me a mental picture of the shield of faith. That there's things you can know intellectually. You know you're made in the image of God. You know you're valuable. You know you're you're forgiven. But you need to hold on to these things because Satan is coming with his fiery darts of doubt and guilt and attack. And you need to hold on to that saying, that is not true. That is not true. And like this verse says in James, resist the devil and he will flee from you. What I found is as I said that, that is not true. This is truth. And I clung to the truth of scriptures. Satan fled. And that issue that used to be the weak, the weakest link in my life, in, the, in my academics, became my force, my, my strength. You know, I basically do nothing else in my life other than write and present. That is my life, is sermons and, and papers and, and stuff. And it's because... You know, Satan attacks the places of strength because he wants to destroy us. But as we resist him, we find that there is, you know, there's this tower of strength that he was hiding, that he didn't want us to, to recapture so that we could be powerful against him. So sometimes you're in a desert because you're in a spiritual battle. And what you need to do is fight. Fight and Maybe you need to go to somebody that's that's wise in these things and say, is there something I've done where I need to repent of, of something stupid I did as a kid or else maybe something that was done to me or else something that uh, was done, you know, or, or that my, my father or even grandfather was messed up, was involved in. Sometimes we're in a spiritual desert, point six. You're only 20 minutes into it, but I've been talking for 60 minutes. I did these podcasts back to back so I'm getting a little bit tired here um, sometimes God is um, forming us sometimes God is discipling us 
Um, sometimes God is in the process of developing something good in us. So you look at some of the great saints in the Bible. Let me ask you the question. Maybe you can pause this and think about it for a second. Of the really big saints in the Bible, the the big guys, the the big uh, protagonists in the Bible, how many of them had an experience of walking through the desert, either literally or metaphorically? So maybe you can make a list. Uh, What I got on my list is Moses, and then um, the Israelites went through the desert. Um, da- uh, David spent some time outside of Israel uh, and in the desert. Um, and uh, Paul, after he got saved, he spent time in Arabia. Don't know how long. Mentions it in Galatians one seventeen, where he was, you know, got saved and then kind of went out of the action over to Arabia, where there's a desert there. Don't know what he did, but when he came back, he's ready to go. And of course, Jesus as well was tempted in the desert right at the beginning of his ministry. So often, um, the people of God go through a desert experience, and often it's right before entering into their ministry. You know, Moses had kind of a false start where he tried to deliver the people of Israel in his own strength, and then ended up going to Midian for 40 years, just watching sheep in the desert you know just just living life just going on just watching sheep and then god calls him and sends him on mission and david you know god anoints him as a young kid and then he ends up going to the courts of of the king and maybe thinks maybe things are, are moving along but then he ends up expelled from the king's presence and finally he has to leave israel and he's outside of the promised land and he's he can't get to the temple where he can worship his God. And he writes, um, that's recorded in 1 Samuel 30 and 31. And David's heart, he, he pours out into Psalm 4, 18, 58, and 61. He's in a desert. He's in a wasteland. He's, he's in a foreign land. He's, this isn't where he's supposed to be. This isn't the life that God has promised him. He's supposed to be king. Um, so, do you guys think what do you think was this a wasted time for David for Moses for the people of Israel for Paul for Daniel uh, for, for David I mean was this time wasted and if not what did they learn in the desert that they couldn't have found, learned somewhere else So what do you think God might be teaching you in a similar time in a desert? Um, I got, uh, went off to Bible school um, and then came back, or got married, came back to my hometown and started working on my master's uh, by correspondence. And it ended up taking seven years to do my 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 master's by correspondence and for most of that time i was a garbage man it was the most glamorous job in the world (laughs) um being the garbage man uh part of it was driving the truck part of it was just running behind the truck throwing garbage in the truck and um you know during that time i was working i was i was loving my family i was serving my church but i felt like god like 
I want to start life. Like I, I felt like I was just, just spinning my wheels. Just God, I want, I want to do something big. I, I want to get out there. I want to get in the fight. Um, and I felt in a way that it was a spiritual wilderness because I, I wasn't, wasn't doing what I want to do. It was just too comfortable, too familiar. Um, and yet I look back on that and I say, that was such a beautiful time. It was such a beautiful time, and it was so important, such an important... I, de- I did so much important things during that time. You know, I, I questioned my faith right down to the roots, and I was able to because I was in a Christian community, and, you know, I developed a strong foundation for my marriage, uh, which was so essential for uh, the insanity that we've been through in the last couple of years. Um, got my finances figured out, you know, uh, with my wife and I, and um, anyways, could go on and on. But there's so many really good, important things that God taught me during that time. Um, at the time, I felt like, come on, like let's get on with life. Um, but God has so much to teach us in these desert moments. Um, sometimes we're um, too timid or too um, we're too afraid to take the next step. And, you know, as I got to the end of this time and reapplied to missions and it seemed like a good thing and, yeah, let's go, let's do this. Um, and then it started to dawn on me, like, I'm taking my family to a third world country. Um, I'm taking them into danger. I'm taking them into political instability. I'm taking them into health risks. I'm taking them into potentially religious violence. I'm taking them into a place of um, from a place of complete security and safety, what felt like complete security, uh, into a place of danger. And how can I do that? How can I, how can I do that as, as their father, as the one that's supposed to protect them? And I really, really, really wrestled with that. Um, how can I take myself and my family into a situation of so much danger? And the story that um, the story that that God really brought me to, really two stories. Uh, first of all, um, the children of Israel in front of the Promised Land, uh, wanting to enter in but being afraid, and secondly, Abraham laying down his son Isaac on the altar. Uh, and I'll start with the second one. You know, we look at that story and wrestle with it. How could God? ask for a human sacrifice when he says later on in scriptures that he hates human sacrifice in fact it's never even entered into his mind to even want somebody to offer human sacrifice and yet he asked abraham to lay down his son on the altar um and as i wrestled with that and as i wrestled with the idea of taking my kids to africa uh, or to you know a third world country where they'd be in significantly more danger um you know, and while we were there, uh, it was during uh, an Ebola pandemic. It was during um, riots and uprisings, um, and they were often sick. Uh, they were in danger. It wasn't just a hypothetical thing. Um, and uh, what God brought me to see is the mercy of the altar that... Um, 
What God told me is, Josiah, you don't get it. The safest place in the world to put Isaac is on the altar. I wanted to keep him safe and out of danger. You're not, you're not understanding the story. Because Jesus said, don't fear man that can kill the body but afterwards have no power, but fear God who can throw both body and soul into hell. We need to change our thinking so profoundly to see that God is the one we need to be afraid of. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And God hates idols. He hates idols because he is jealous for his glory. And Isaac was in danger of becoming an idol for Abraham. And God wanted to protect Abraham and he wanted to protect Isaac from being that idol and then falling under the wrath of God as an idol. And God was saying, I want him to be safe. Put him somewhere safe. And this isn't the only message of the story, and maybe you think this is kind of strange. But what God was telling to me is, put your children somewhere safe. Put them in my hands. Tell me that I am more important to you than your children are. Don't make your children an idol because I hate idols and I want my blessings to be on your children. And the second thing he told me is um, what he just brought me to the story of the Israelites going to the promised land. And um, on the front of the handout that I printed for my students, I have this verse um, numbers 12, 21 5 uh, the people of Israel speaking to Moses and saying why did you take us out of Egypt just so that we can die in the desert there's no bread no water here and we are fed up of this terrible food um, and I asked the students why didn't they like manna and it's 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 a question that Exodus forces us to ask. You're supposed to, if you read Exodus attentively, you're supposed to ask that question. Why didn't they like the food? Because it says very explicitly that, and kind of makes a big deal about making about saying that manna tasted good. It tasted like honey. Um, it tasted like, uh, and they would make these cakes that tasted like honey. So in a culture that didn't have access to sugarcane, honey was the only sweet thing they had. So basically, they were eating, you know, donuts. They, they were eating cake. Uh, this is what God gave them. He didn't give them some scraps of, of dry bread or something. He gave them awesome food that tasted really good. So why weren't they happy? Why did they say it tasted disgusting? Why? What, what do you think? What's your answer? Um, the answer is they got sick of it, right? Because they had to eat it for 40 years. And anything, I mean, if you eat it for 40 years, gets pretty sickening. But they weren't supposed to eat it for 40 years. They were supposed to eat it for about two weeks. God was going to take them out of Egypt, went to Mount Sinai, got the law into the up on up to the promised land. They're supposed to be there. Do I have the order of that right? Yeah, so it was supposed to be about a month, I think, where, you know, they go to Mount Sinai and then they go on to the promised land. So a month of eating donuts, you know, that that's all right. We can handle that. 
But then it ended up being 40 years, 40 years of eating what was supposed to last, what was supposed to be exciting food for about 40 days. And I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, as Amos said. Um, But I believe that sometimes when Christians or even churches or even denominations are just spinning in circles and they're still chewing on the same revelation of God that they were chewing on yesterday and the year before and the year before that and 10 years before that and 20 years before that and they just feel stuck and and they're not moving on and they're not there's nothing new there's nothing exciting they're not experiencing that full revelation of God they're not walking in victory is it because somewhere in the past there was um there was a Jordan River and on the other side there were giants and somebody came back and said i feel like a grasshopper compared to you know when i think about reaching our ethnic community when i think about reaching out to the skater community when i think about having a you know a, an event for for non-christians at our church when I think about starting an Awana program, it, it just terrifies us. We can't do that. We can't do that. That would be crazy. That would be irresponsible with our finances. We can't. We can't risk, you know, losing that much money. We can't risk losing the manpower. We we can't do this. And they didn't. The Jordan was not crossed. And people are turned around and went back to where God met them last time, but God wasn't there anymore. Went back to Mount Sinai. And it was just a pile of rocks. And they went back to, you know, all the places in the desert. And it was just dry and empty. And God wasn't there. And what God said to me as I was wrestling with taking my kids to Africa is, trust me with your kids. Trust me. Because um, the people of Israel said, we don't want to go across because we're terrified of our kids getting killed a very human natural thing to say and when God judged them and said you're going to spend 40 years in the desert what he said is because you didn't trust me with your kids it's your kids who will receive your promise and I want my kids to receive their own promises from God I don't want them getting my second hand promises because I want to be the one conquering and they can receive behind me and they can conquer their own land but I don't want to lead them in the desert for 40 years and have their church experience be wandering in the desert behind me so that they can finally do what I should have had the balls to do. I want to do my job so they can do theirs. All right, moving on. Um, sometime, sometimes, and this is a longer one, they've all kind of turned longer. This might end up being a three-part thing. Um, sometimes our desert is physical and not spiritual. Sometimes our desert is physical and not spiritual. Um, in a sermon, when was that? Last year sometimes, sometime, I said, sometimes Jesus is not enough. And I kind of left that hanging out there and people kind of looked at me like, what? And I said, 
What I mean by that is sometimes the answer to your problem is not more church, it's not more prayer, it's not more Bible, it's not more community, it's get well, take some pills, go to the doctor, uh, go to a psychologist. Sometimes Jesus is always the answer, but um, sometimes the way you're going to find Jesus, God's provision, because all good things come down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, as it says in James. Do not be deceived. All good things come from God. Is that James? Yeah, it's James 1.17. Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Um, but sometimes, you know, you're sick. And... You know, if, if your your body is sick, whether that's you're dealing with cancer or you're dealing with, um, you know, an injury, maybe you're bedridden for a while, those are kind of the more obvious things. But you can have mental trauma as well, either from things you went through or else just, you know, a genetic condition or something happening in your brain. We've learned a lot about the brain in recent years and how um, it is a physical organ there's chemicals in there that need to do their chemical chemically stuff um and if if you don't have enough of a certain chemical you're going to be bipolar you're going to be you know depressed you're you're going to be unbalanced um and yes it's true that we overmedicate as a culture and sometimes your issue is um you know I need to add one here is forgiveness um just going to add that Sometimes your issue, you're in a desert of, of sin or spiritual attack or forgiveness. And because, um, you know, our, our secular, our doctors and stuff just have one tool in their toolbox pretty much is just pills. Sure, they do over-medicate us. But on the other hand, I think the church, um, because we're so focused on forgiveness and sin and spiritual attack, Sometimes we overlook the fact that sometimes, as uh, Sigmund Freud said, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. You know, sometimes it is just what it is. Um, sometimes you're sick, so take some pills. There's no shame in that. There's no condemnation. You're not a failure in that. And I would go back to what I said earlier about, you know, uh, the, some of the problems I see in, in some Pentecostal movements. Um, and listen to the sermon on uh, the health and wealth gospel if you'd like. But sometimes we shame people that are sick. And there's no shame in being sick. Sometimes we're, you know, like Paul that has a thorn in our side. Or like Jesus who, you know, is, is suffering in the garden, sweating drops, drops of tears, knowing he's going to go to the cross. Sometimes we're, we're dealing with something physical or something huge in front of us. And we're going to feel down. We're going to feel... Uh, in a spiritual battle or wasteland and that's okay you know we shouldn't put this pressure on ourselves that we need to be feeling happy 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 all the time um it's okay to be in a spiritual will, uh, wilderness when you know there, there's serious physical things happening or else perhaps there's something happening um in your life or your marriage or um no that's a different point okay we're going to stick on this point. Sometimes the desert is physical and not spiritual. 
Okay, interesting. As I read my notes, I see I was kind of going in a different direction with this. Um, so, after Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, it, Luke 4, 2, this is one of the most profound verses in scriptures. After Jesus fasted, he was hungry. And it's true. After you fast, you get hungry. And Jesus was, um, you know, tempted and tried in every way that we are, yet without sin. Uh, he really walked in our shoes. And after being, after fasting, he was hungry. Um, in the desert, God met the Israelites with food. He met Elijah with food. He met Jesus with food. After his temptation, the angels ministered to him. God has made us dependent on food and water and air and a few other basic things. Let me ask you, why do you think God made us so dependent on things like food, water, rest? In Deuteronomy 8.3, it says that God led them through wastelands and made them eat of manna from his hand to humble them. It's humiliating. It's, it's humbling to say, I need something. I need food. I need you. Um, something that we really neglect in our day is rest. You know, God, God put one commandment out of the Ten Commandments aside for rest. He put an entire day out of seven days. He put an entire day aside for rest. And we we just trample all over that as though it's totally not a big deal as though it's totally acceptable for us to work seven days a week especially in ministry we're working on sunday well it's not a big deal if i don't take a day off somewhere else in the week i can just just keep going and it's not true it's not how we're supposed to work and i have a sermon in the sermons podcast on uh, sabbath entering into the rest of god something i haven't modeled well but i hope i've taught well on it that we need to rest it's a commandment it's not a it's not an option it's not something you can do you do if you want to it's not something you need to feel guilty about when you're resting you should feel guilty if you're not resting because god has commanded us to do it and when we don't rest adequately what we find is we start to break down you know if you don't sleep you will die did you know that you'll die like like you can go I think they say like four or five days, maybe six days without sleep. And then basic functions will start shutting down. And if you can't get to sleep, there's some people that have conditions where they actually literally can't sleep. Um, they're fatal. You will die if you can't sleep. And if you don't sleep enough, if you're just barely scraping by, if you're not taking rest like you should, then you're not going to live in the fullness of what God has for you. Uh, you're going to live a pale, dried out, wrung out life. Something that John Piper uh, encouraged me to see as he taught on rest as well is that rest is a statement of faith. Rest is saying to God, I believe you. I believe that you can make the world turn while I roll back and forth, while I turn on my bed, you know, while I rest. You can make other things work. And um, when uh, Jethro met Moses, he said, what you're doing is not right because you're going to wear out yourself and this people. And when we take on too much, when we don't delegate, when we don't take rest, we wear ourselves out and we wear our people out. 
people get sick of a leader that is inaccessible and is tired and is worn out and wrung out. As much as they appreciate people pouring themselves out, yes, but we really wish you would just take a rest so that we could have the best of you. So sometimes our desert is uh, physical and not spiritual. Sometimes it's it's of our own doing because we're just not taking the rest. God has has offered us rest. In Hebrews it says, let us fear if it seems as though somebody's not entering into the rest that is promised. There is a rest for the people of God. And sometimes we don't enter into it. And that should be something that's bad. Oh no, you're not resting. Ah, quick, rest. Um, it's, it's a bad thing to not enter into the rest of God because Jesus has died to open up the door to rest for us. And we need to enter into that. Okay, there, there's a point I added last minute here. Forgiveness, that could be a whole another thing. Um, forgiveness is, uh, somebody said it's releasing the prisoner and letting ourselves go free. Forgiveness is not saying what you did was okay. Forgiveness is not saying I'm going to have full relationship with you again, necessarily. But what forgiveness is saying is I will pay the emotional price of your your sin towards me I'm gonna what you did to me hurt me and I'm gonna pay that price I'm gonna feel that pain and I'm gonna release that pain to God and say God this hurt this wasn't right but I'm not gonna force them to pay me back for it I'm just gonna I'm just gonna take it I'm just gonna pay it and I'm going to ask you father to bring justice but I'm not going to pay that or I'm not going to force them to pay. The essence of unforgiveness is someday they're going to make, they're going to pay. Someday they're going to make it right. And um, I'm working with somebody right now trying to understand what forgiveness is. And the last thing to go is we hold on sometimes to this idea that someday I'm going to make them understand how much they hurt me. Someday. And as long as you're holding on to that, I'm going to tell them how much they hurt me. You're not really forgiving. Um, And forgiveness is, it sounds like a bad thing when you say it like that. How can you tell somebody who's been hurt that they need to do something hard? And it is hard to forgive. And it's profoundly unfair. Um, But there's liberty there. There's freedom. And sometimes we're walking in a wasteland because somebody has done something hurtful to us and the only way out of that wasteland is to walk past that person again and to say I'm not going to make you pay for what you did because Jesus forgives me I forgive you and I release you from what you did to me and everything inside us says no I'm not going to forgive that person. But that's the way out. And Jesus has forgiven us. And he gives us, and, and when we do, it's tremendous. We, we find the wounds that they caused us heal. And the pain that they caused us goes away. And the power that they have over us diminishes and fades away. It's so strange and counterintuitive, but the way out of that desert is back the way you came, past that person, pushing through the hurt to say, I forgive you.
and that's often something you can do with a counselor and somebody that that can really walk through that with you um okay so two more points goodness gracious i thought i could do this in half an hour um and and then we'll close here sometimes it seems like we do everything for god and god just doesn't come through god just doesn't do his job i did my job god where were you you didn't do it you know and these are the hardest times i think um anybody you know as we're kind of going through the story of my life this isn't something as a young kid i had this is something that recently you know going going to africa as a missionary laying it all on the altar laying my kids you know i i was ready and i visualize it and i I asked God, what if my kids die over there? And I laid them on the altar and I said, not my will, but thy will be done. You know, I was ready to give it all. I mean, obviously my life, my life, is that's easy. You know, I wanted to be a martyr, believe it or not. Uh, that's a whole other story. But, and then I felt like God just said, no, not really interested. You know, you can go back now. Back to What? I just lit a match to my entire life. I've got nothing left back home. Did everything to go over there. And he bring God, what the heck? You know? I told uh, a counselor, you know, at, at, as I was working through this later, I said, I felt like I wrapped my entire life in gift wrap and handed it to God, and he threw it in my freaking face. That's how I felt. Um... I've got a, I'm not sure why, but people kept asking me to speak in church during this time, I guess because I was a missionary. Um, but I've got, got a podcast called um, What God Taught Me About God, and um, we choose our names, but God chooses our stories, and uh, call me Mara. And uh, it's kind of where I was at, you know. God sent me out sweet, but has brought me back bitter um call me mara as uh as ruth's mother-in-law says in uh, ruth 120 don't call me naomi which means sweet anymore call me mara which means bitter because the almighty has filled me with bitterness and you know it's it's similar to what um elijah experienced uh he you know did the whole thing um told the king that it wouldn't rain didn't rain for i think it was three years lived in the wilderness was fed by ravens came back um told him it's going to rain now well let's have a contest he had a contest between baal and yahweh uh fire came from heaven consumed the the altar you know the story and then he was expecting the whole people to you know reject baal worship and come and worship yahweh worship god and they didn't in fact, Jezebel said, sent him a letter, um, so help me God, I'm going to kill you. And he freaked out and he ran and ran and ran and ran. Um, and then he had to leave his servant in one town because he just kept running and running to get away from, from Jezebel. And he finally, you know, God meets him in the desert and feeds him, which is significant. God was caring for his body, saying, look, right now, you know, your, your desert is partially physical. Eat some food so you have the strength to keep going. And then God meets, 
God meets with him in, in a quiet whisper. Um, and Elijah says, I did everything for you, and these stupid people aren't worshiping you, and you're not turning their hearts back to you, and what the heck, God? And God says, I've got people here that you don't know about. I've got 10,000 people that haven't bent the knee to Baal, and um, you go back and find a successor, and you just keep being faithful to me. Um, but sometimes, and, and Elijah said numerous times, I just want to die. I just want to die. Just let me die. I'm done. He was suicidal, basically. Um, but was just just fed up with with this whole thing because he felt like he had done what he was supposed to do, but God didn't do what he was supposed to do. And uh, God's plans were bigger than what Elijah was seeing in front of him. Kind of for comic relief, uh, Jonah had almost the same experience, only the opposite. He, you know, did the whole belly of the whale, ship to Tarshish thing, finally shows up at Nineveh. He preaches, and everybody repents. And then he's sitting, sitting up there on the mountainside saying, Ah, God, these people repented. You're not sending fire and judgment. I'm so angry, I want to die. Um, and uh, don't know any pastors that are in that situation. But the point being, whether it's repenting or not repenting, whether it's success or failure, Sometimes, you know, we just, we feel like this is what God should have done. And it can be extremely frustrating when it's like, God, that's not what you were supposed to do. You were supposed to do this and you didn't do that. Um, so I just ask you, as we come to the close of this podcast, how has God failed you? How has God failed you? Do you need to repent of unrealistic expectations? Do you need to forgive him for the pain he has caused you? It's a strange concept, forgiving God, because we usually forgive people for sin. But we need to forgive people who have hurt us. And sometimes God causes deep pain. And I personally found that was kind of my way out of that desert, was I need to forgive God for what he did. Um, and do you need to submit yourself under the sovereign hand of God as Job did when he said the Lord gives and the Lord takes away may his name be praised and as Jesus did in the desert in the, the garden when he said not my will but thy will be done and sometimes God just wants to know who is your true love do you love God for who he is or for what he does do you love God for who he is or for what he does? This is an aching question that many uh, a person in a, in a marriage has asked. Do you love me for my body or for who I am? Do you love me for my money, for my house, for my car, or for who I am? Do you love me or do you love my stuff? And this is what God wants to ask us. Do you, do you love me for who I am or what I do? You know, Jesus fed bunch of people, 5,000, 10,000, I forget how many. And then they all came running after him. And in John 6, 26 to 27, he says, you're not following me for spiritual reasons, but because you had enough to eat and were fed. Do you, are you following God for who he is or what he does? That's a really hard question to answer. And often we don't know the answer to that. And 
I think the reason that God puts us through deserts is because when God isn't giving us anything, it becomes pretty clear whether we're chasing him for what he does or who he is. Jesus, um, you know, as the story goes on in John 6, he doesn't, the next meeting with all these people that are all excited about him, he doesn't give them any food. In fact, he talks about how they need to eat him. How he says, my blood is one, is true life and my body is, is the true bread that comes from heaven. And people are saying, what in the world are you talking about? We're not going to eat you. We're not cannibals. That's unclean meat. That's, that's disgusting and terrible. We can't do that. And they all leave except for his 12 disciples. And Jesus said, what, are you going to leave too? And his disciples say, where else could we go? Because you have the words of life. And sometimes God leads us into a wilderness where scriptures don't speak to us, church doesn't speak to us, worship doesn't speak to us, our Christian work doesn't speak to us, life and community doesn't speak to us, walking in nature doesn't speak to us, scriptures don't speak to us, nothing speaks to us. And we're saying, God, what the freaking heck? There is... You're not speaking to me. I'm hungry. My heart is restless and I'm trying to rest in you and you're not letting me. And I'm tired and you're not feeding me and you're not causing me to rest. But you have the words of life. And there's nowhere else I can go. So I guess I'm just going to keep following you until you show up. Until it starts making sense until there's something here to eat. There's nothing now, but this is where the life is. In fact, isn't all of life, isn't all of our Christian experience a walk through the desert? Hebrews 11 talks about uh, the heroes of the faith and how they went out not knowing where they were going, not knowing what the future held. Um, and never and not receiving in their lifetime the promise. But they went out searching for a city whose maker and builder is God. A city that has foundations. And isn't um, our entire... We're not... This isn't our home. Our, our spirits groan within us, longing for uh, the next kingdom, as it says in Romans 6. All creation groans, and we ourselves groan, longing for what's next. And this is where we, this is where the first point really applies. We need to adjust our expectations. This is not heaven. Heaven is not a place on earth. Heaven is where we're going, where Jesus will be there, and we will be in his presence all the time. But in this life, what we need to find out, and what God wants to push us to find out is, who is your true love? What do you really want? Who do you really want? What is really worthy of worship for you? There's an expression um, that you might not have heard that uh, my toddler is just serenade, serenading us in the background there. Um, by the end of, of your life, or by, by the age of 60, say, um, everybody has the face that they deserve. I don't know if you've heard that expression. It's kind of insulting, maybe. Uh, maybe somewhat inappropriate. 
Um, but it kind of makes me smile because when I when you hear that by the age of 60, everybody has the face they deserve, you're probably thinking of somebody in your mind. Um, you know, there's some really awesome, sweet, kind people. And by the time they get to 60, you know, their faces are kind of soft and, and glowing and they have laugh lines etched around their eyes and and their face is is old but sweet you know and then there's some people that are just cranky and ornery and and um, mean people and by the time they get to 60 their faces are are mean and and cracked and hard and and have lines of anger in them and i believe that life is constructed in such a way that by the end of it each one of us will have the faith that we really want. By the end of our life, each one of us will have the faith that we really, truly want. And there's people that I know that have lost their faith, and I say, well, no wonder. You know, look what they went through. Look what was done to them. Look what wasn't done to them. Look look at the road they, like, I can't judge that. Of course they, they lost their faith. Look at what happened. And there's other people I look at and say, look at their incredible faith. Well, no wonder they have such faith. Look at what they walk through. Look at the lonely paths they walked. Look at, at the pain that they, that they walked through. Look at how God met them in the wilderness. Look at, at the trials that they went through. No wonder they have such a strong faith. Life is made to push us to ask, what do I actually want? What do you want? <laughs>